0: got to study God. You're at Colossians chapter 4. Let's go to the Lord together and pray. Father, thank you. I thank you, Lord, for allowing us to gather together around your word, and God, we want to hear from you. So as we just pray through song, God, speak, oh Lord, speak, God. Speak, Lord, and let us hear from you. God, I love this church. With all my heart, God, I love this church, Lord. I long for growth and happiness in you, Christ. But Lord, I know far greater, far deeper, Lord, than my love for this church is your love for this church, Lord Jesus. And I just pray, God, that you would help, that you would let your word, Speak deep into our souls, God, that you would move us by your spirit through your word. God, let what's found here in these God-breathed scriptures, let what's found here enter into our ears and be impressed upon us in a deep way. God, give us encouragement as we look at these commands from your word. That just as you died for us, Lord Jesus, just as you laid down your life for us, Lord Jesus, that in the same way, you would be willing to help us to obey these commands. Fill us with hope in that. Fill us with encouragement. God, I pray that you would change directions of lives today, Lord, through your word. God, all the tactics of the enemy to distract, Lord, and discourage God. All those things. God, I pray that you would deal with them. Deal with them, God. Father, deal with them. And clear a path, Lord, for us to hear from you this morning. We love you, Lord, and thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. Colossians chapter 4. We're in verse 5 through 6, so we've just been coming, most of you know this, passage by passage, verse by verse, coming through Colossians. We land today at chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, which we're going to read this together, okay? Get your eyes on that those verses, please. Verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So I want to start off just talking about the plain sense of what these couple of verses, what these two commands mean. Uh, This is talking about, I want you to see that in the plain sense of these things, this is talking about a Christian's personal evangelism. It's talking about a Christian's. Personal evangelism. Paul is charging the Colossian church to live and to speak in such a way that they're bringing lost people to Christ. It's a Christian's personal evangelism. Now, there's two main reasons why you should see it that way. That you should see this passage as a exhortation into a Christian personal evangelism. Two reasons. Number one is the context. So, these two commands in verse five and six they flow out of the context. Of verse 3 and verse 4. So let me read that. Verse 3 and 4 says this. At the same time. Pray also for us. That God may open to us. A door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ. On account of which I'm in prison. That I may make it clear. Which is how I ought to speak. So here's Paul saying. Pray for me. For a door, an open door for the word of God, for the gospel to be preached. And that I might preach it clearly as I ought to preach. And he goes straight into, and you guys, I'm asking you to pray that for me. Verse 3 and 4. And I'm telling you guys, walk wisely among the outsiders that are there with you. So this is evangelistic in nature. It's the mission of God is what we're talking about according to the context. So that's reason number one. So Paul... Is concerned with his evangelical witness in verse 3 and 4. And in verse 5 and 6, our passage today. He's concerned with their evangelical witness. That's reason number one. Reason number two is this word. It says in verse 5, towards outsiders. Walking wisdom, towards outsiders. So this is a command towards outsiders. It's towards those who are not in Christ. Those who are not a part of the church. But this is a command to do something towards the lost world, okay? This is evangelistic in nature, a Christian's personal evangelism, okay? So I want you to see that clearly. And then here's another thing I want you to see clearly from this passage of Scripture. This passage is mainly about that moment-by-moment, day-by-day, personal witness to the world, okay? As opposed to not so much the the public proclamation of God's word, although that's important. But this passage is not mainly about that public proclamation to the masses, but rather that day by day, daily, moment by moment, personal evangelical witness from every Christian. That's the idea that you should be gathering as you read these verses. Now, why? Why should we see it that way? I'll give you three reasons you should see it that way. One is the word speech in verse 6. The word for speech in verse 6. It commands us to do something with our speech. And that's not the Greek word that's typically used for a heralding or a proclamation. What we're talking about here is your speech, your conversation, moment by moment and day by day with an outside world. That's the idea. Second reason is this. It says always. You see that there in verse, in verse 6. Let your speech... Always, So always. He's telling the church to do something always. And that really doesn't fit public proclamation. Because the whole church is not called necessarily to do this public mass preaching proclamation. And they certainly don't do it always. But the idea of this verse is is let your speech, your conversation, always be geared in towards reaching the outsiders. Reaching the lost. That's the idea. One more reason. Number three. It says right here. At the end of verse 6, answer, that you might be able to know how you ought to answer each person. Answer each person. Now that that describes a very personal dealing with individual lost people. That you might be able to answer each person. The word answer there is, is, is in the NAS, I believe it says, responding to the Jews. It's this idea that you're going to be speaking something and they're responding and you need to know how to respond or to answer to their response. It's this very personal to each one, each person conversation going on. That's the idea of these verses is your evangelical witness, your personal evangelism in a very day by day, moment by moment throughout your life witnessing for Christ Jesus. That's the idea. That's what I want you to be thinking about. As we walk through this passage of scripture. Public proclamation of the gospel is very, very important. It's just not what's in view in these verses. This is that moment by moment stuff. It's it's the stuff that all Christians are to be engaged in. Just like public proclamation is very important. This is extremely important for all of us here. Especially for every, every Christian here. So should Christians have a zeal... For the mission of God in distant lands. Should we have a zeal for the gospel to, to explode out into unreached people groups? Yes and amen, right? Paul said in verse 3 and 4, Hey church, pray for me that a door might be, pray for your missionary that a door might be open for the word. But he also says this, because what's supposed to undergird that is a zeal not just for distant lands, but a zeal for the mission at home. And so he says to them, not only pray for me, but you walk wisely among the outsiders that are among you. So did you get the idea here? A personal evangelism at home. And that's the plain sense of this passage of scripture. Before we dig into the details, the details of verse five, five and six, I want us to zoom out and see what is the worldview that has to be in place as a foundation for evangelism to even make sense. What is the worldview that must be in place? There are many worldviews that actually undercut verse five and six here, but what are the worldviews that must be are the worldview that must be in place in your life as a foundation for personal evangelism for this push in your life to actually even <clears throat> make sense? So here we go. A worldview that makes sense of evangelism. Now here's what sparked me to, to, to talk about this for a minute. What sparked me to talk about that? this is, is among some people, there's a shock value that happens when they read, walk in wisdom among what? Outsiders. You can't say that. You can't call them outsiders. You can't do things. You can't, call, you can't isolate and, and, and put out people like that and call them outsiders and then, So You can't do that. And so that whole idea of the shock value of that Makes me want to talk to us about a worldview that has that in place. Okay, so here it is. This is the worldview that must be a foundation. I got it. I have it for you in three parts. This worldview in three parts that must undergird verse five and six. Number one, there are two categories of people in the world. Two categories of people in the world. Insiders and outsiders. That's saved and lost. That's in Christ, not in Christ. In the church, not in the church. Insiders, outsiders is the word this used here. That's number one. Number two, outsiders can become insiders through Jesus. Praise God for that, right? That everybody here in this room that is an insider, you were once an outsider and you don't deserve to be in. None of us. That's number two. Number three is this. Insiders should be striving to bring outsiders in. Should be striving to bring outsiders in for many reasons. One, just obedience. Just obedience to God's command to preach the gospel in season and out of season. Those sort of things. Also, in, in, in love for the glory of God. And you want to see your God's glory be, uh, be spread throughout all the earth. That's another reason. Another reason is that the eternity of a soul... That there are really people that are going to die and go to hell. And it's forever. Forever. And so these things drive us that, that, that insiders should be striving to bring outsiders in. So this is the worldview. Do you understand that worldview? This worldview is under attack. It's been eroded in many churches in our land. Even the very foundation of it. Just the fact. That there are insiders and outsiders is being eroded in this culture. It's under attack. So here's the question. If that's under attack, the question is, is it biblical? Is that worldview I just presented to you, is it biblical? And can you prove it that it's biblical? Can you show me that? And so here's what I want to do. I just want to give you a few cross-references that give you an insight into this worldview, especially into this idea of viewing the world as two categories, insiders and outsiders. Now one is obvious in the verse that we're in, right? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What's he talking about? He's talking about toward the lost world. But let me give you another passage of scripture in case we're not convinced. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, it says it like this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? He's talking about church discipline, discipline, excommunication within the church. And he says, what have I to do with doing that with, and what's the term he uses? Outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Do you see the same paradigm, the same way of viewing the world? Outside and inside. This is is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Also, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12. It says, so that you may walk properly, so do some things, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Same word, outsiders, and be dependent on no one. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. Somebody being elder in a local church, it says they must have a good reputation among Outsiders. Same word is used there. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. It speaks about doing good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. So there's a, there are those who are of the household of faith. There are those who are not of the household of faith. Those who are inside, those who are called, according to this verse, outsiders. One more. Mark chapter 4, verse 11. I want you to see this is all over the New Testament. Mark chapter 4, and verse 11, he says, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. For those outside, everything is in parables. So so here's this this worldview of viewing the world as two categories. Those that are in Christ and those who who are outsiders. Do you possess this worldview? Do you possess it? And what I don't mean is do you possess it on paper? Do you agree to it? On paper, what I mean is, do you really possess it in a sense that you feel compelled, as an insider in Christ, to help outsiders come in, and then you move upon that? Do you have this world that you possess in your mind in your heart? This particular worldview. There's a you don't have to flip there, but Second Corinthians chapter five, in verse eighteen through twenty, and it speaks about us being ambassadors for Christ. It says that God was in the world, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you hear that? God's in Christ. What are you doing in Christ? He's reconciling the world to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And he's made us ambassadors for Christ, is what that says, as though God were pleading with a lost world, with outsiders, pleading through us, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. That you might become the righteousness of God in him. And God has given us this ministry. Do you have, do you possess this worldview in a sense that it compels you to take up this ministry of reconciliation? To take up your role as an ambassador of Christ? Now let me mention just a few false alternatives. Alternative worldviews, false alternatives. Uh, I want us to be careful not to be negatively affected by these things. I'll just give you three examples. These are false alternative worldviews. One is the all God's children people. The all God's children people. This is the idea. This is the worldview that people are all children of God. Everyone's a child of God. That's this idea that's floating throughout our culture. It is directly opposed to 1 John, where he says, this is how you know those who are children of Satan and those who are children of God. So two categories again. And yet this worldview says we are all God's children. I want to encourage you to beware of that. In fact, just quick side note, here in pretty recent years, I believe, I don't remember the exact time, there was actually a campaign, and the campaign itself that was directed at changing the minds of Mississippians was the All God's Children campaign. And what it was doing is taking sin lightly. in specifically the sin of homosexuality, taking it lightly. It's, just, it's, not a, it's not a big deal, it's not a sin. We're All God's Children, it's that kind of idea. And that came into Mississippi and there's a church literally in Clinton, Mississippi. A church that, that has, I, I wish I could remember the name of the church, but it has Baptists in its name. Do so you imagine? Just a normal uh, cultural Christian in this life, walking up, saying, "We need to find a church to go to one Sunday." And they landed this Baptist church, and this Baptist church is about these things. They're about the, he's, he's the pastor speaking on the commercials that went into Mississippi ears, all, all over uh, all over the television. He's a pastor there saying these things. So I want you to see that this is this is this is a mindset that's beginning to engulf our culture. Let me give you a second. False. Worldview. I will call them the modern day monks. Modern day monks. Now these are folks that believe the insider, uh, the insider, outsider paradigm. They believe it on, on paper, but they believe that godly living is is this. It's to box themselves in so that they don't have to have any kind of interaction with outsiders. They define their godliness. They define their godly living. By what? By what they don't do. and By what they abstain from. Just let me box myself in. And not be a part of this ungodly culture. Those are modern day monks. They do not participate. They they don't participate in the things of the world. But they do not participate in Matthew 28 verse 19 and 20. When he said go and make disciples of all the nations. So modern day monks is a false mindset. Let me give you a third one. We'll call it practical universalism. Practical universalism. You've heard of practical atheism. I'm sure most of you have. Practical atheism. Well, this is practical universalism. Universalism is the belief that we are all the same. There's no insider, outsider mindset before God. And that all humankind, all humankind will eventually be saved. Now, I don't believe there's probably many people in this room that believe that every person on the planet will eventually be saved. I don't think that, that, that you are a. most of you are universalists. But practical universalism is to not believe that on paper, yet the way you live your life with this framework of their outsiders that are headed toward eternal destruction, you live your life in such a way that it's like everything's just fine. Everything's fine. That I have no role in this. And that's practical universalism. There's no evangelism there, and certainly no, no uh, obedience to verses 5 and 6 of Colossians chapter 4 because these worldviews undercut the commands that we're looking at in verse 5 and six today. So let me just kind of end this worldview idea. Let me just kind of end this by posing a question to you before we move into the details of these verses. And here's a question what do outsiders outsiders verse 5, what do outsiders typically look like in this geographical context? And obviously I don't mean physically what they look like. What I mean is what do outsiders typically, what kind of outsider are they? Are they Buddhist outsiders or Muslim outsiders? What kind of typical outsiders are in this culture that you live in? And the reality is just like in any culture, there is a variety. There's a variety. You want militant, uh, atheists. Militant feminism—you want that? Come with me to the abortion place to go preach the gospel there, and you'll find it. It's, it's a there's a there's a variety of these things. But what do you typically see in this part of the world? What you typically see is a cultural Christianity. You see what's called in the Bible false. Or what we should see in the Bible is false conversion. Many many people that are outsiders and yet they would claim the name of Christ. Outsiders, and yet they would claim to be a part of the church. Outsiders, yet they would take on the title of Christians. And so the reason why I think it's good to think about that as we dig into the details of verse 5 and 6, because the main place that most people in this room are going to be living out, verse 5 and 6 of Colossians 4, is in this context of an abundance of false Christianity so you need to think about these things in your context of how can I live out this personal evangelism in this geographical context that I live in, okay? Now, let's look at Colossians 4, verse 5 to 6 more closely. I want you to see what the Christian's life must be towards outsiders. What the Christian's life must be towards outsiders. It can be divided into four parts. You see it there on your study guide. Number one, walk in wisdom. Toward outsiders. Number two, make the best use of time towards outsiders. Number three, your speech towards outsiders. And number four, having an each person mindset towards outsiders. Let's start with that first one. So number one, walk in wisdom. We say it in verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What does it mean? What does this mean? I want you to picture the Christian life as a walk. It says walk in wisdom. The Christian life pictured as a walk in the midst of a, a dark world where you're carrying the light of Christ as you rub shoulders with outsiders. I want you to picture the Christian life like that. You say, well, what about Psalm one You know, Psalm 1-1, what does it say? Blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Who do not sit in the seat of scoffers, stand in the way of sinners. What about that verse? And that that's true. But you have to take the whole Bible and put these things together to understand what they mean. So think of other parts of God's Word. John 17 verse 15. Jesus is praying this in John 17 15. I do not ask that you, Father, take them out of the world. Don't do that. But that you keep them from the evil one. So don't take them out of the world. They're in the world for my glory. But just keep them from the evil one while they're in the world. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10? He says, Since then you would need to go out of the world. And what he's getting at, he's saying this. He's saying, Listen, when I told you not to associate with the sexually immoral, I told you not to associate with the the the, the godlessness that's out that's out there, this these sins, the drunkenness. When I told you not to associate with that, Paul says, I wasn't saying don't associate with with those that are of the world, but those who claim to be in Christ, or, or those, those who are part of the church that have been disciplined out of the church. That's what that verse is saying. He said, because if I told you, if I told you to disassociate yourself from all the sin, all the sexual immoral, all the drunkards, all those things, this is what he said. He says, since then, you would need to go out of the world. He said, the world's full of it. You would have to go out of the world to separate yourself from those things. So in other words, we live out the Christian life right in the midst. We walk, in the midst of darkness with the light of Christ. That's the idea of the Christian life. Now, it's not just any kind of walk. This says, this says walk in wisdom. Now, what does it mean? Walk in wisdom. And I want to stop here before I answer that question, and I want to give a warning. A warning. I want to encourage everybody here. I want to warn everyone here to beware of defining wisdom by your own reasoning and your own experience and not by God's word. There are plenty of examples in God's word where the world would have looked and said, that's not wise, but God said do it. Think about Gideon. Gideon, it's not wise for you to go to war with only 300 men. Gideon says, it's wise to obey God. So beware of defining wisdom by, by your own definition and your own, your own reasoning. Beware of using the phrase. You got to be wise just to justify what you deem as wise. Now I would say this is this is especially, this especially needs to be a warning in the area of evangelism. There are many evangelistic methods and strategies flying under the radar of wisdom that are truly not wise. And yet there are many biblical commands, biblical principles that are deemed as as unwise that these soul winning experts say that's not wise when it's just God's word so you need to be aware of that think about the the variety of reasons that Jesus himself would have been considered unwise in his evangelistic methods. Jesus did, did you just tell them that they must forsake all they have and they can't be your disciple Jesus that's not wise that's not a way to get a big following that's not wise you see that Jesus, they just came to you and said that they wanted to follow you and you told them that you're homeless. That's just not wise. You get it? It's just not wise, right? And so you've got to be aware of, of, of thinking of plugging that. Well, you got to be wise in what you do. And really what you mean is there's something I think is wise. And I'm saying that's how you walk in wisdom. But what we need to know is what does God's word say is wise? You understand that? What does God's word say is wise? So what does it mean here when it says walk in wisdom towards outsiders? And let me give you a twofold answer. One is more general and one gets more specific. Two Twofold answer. One's more general. One gets more specific. So number one is this. This is about your conduct. Number one, this is about your conduct in the midst of a world of outsiders. Walk in wisdom. This is about your conduct. The, the NAS says it like this. Conduct yourselves in wisdom. Toward outsiders. This is the wisdom that was spoken of in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 and 10. He says, I pray for you that you would have spiritual wisdom. So that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing Him. So it's His spiritual wisdom that allows you to walk with God. in your conduct that honors Him. It's a conduct that undergirds your message. It's godliness and conduct that undergirds your message. a walk in wisdom. Something that God said to David when David had bad conduct that, that did not line up with the message. He said this to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. He said, by this deed, David, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The conduct, walking wisdom, must match the message of that we preach. says so number one. That's a general sense. But more, I think it's even more specific than that. Okay? Even more specific. A walk in wisdom. Remember, it's about personal evangelism towards who? Towards outsiders. Right? We're talking about personal witness towards outsiders. So, so it's wisdom and how to lead someone to Christ. Walk in wisdom. It's, it's Proverbs chapter 11 verse 30. He who wins souls is wise. He who wins souls is wise. So think about walking. It's a walk. You're walking through life. And you're asking God. God help me to live and speak in such a way. That outsiders become insiders. Help me to live and speak in such a way. That souls are saved. Is that the way you walk through life? You walk through life like that. God help me to live and speak in such a way. That's wise if you do. That's wise if you live in that way. This is, more important. this is more pointed than, than you just... I, I'll try to lead someone to Christ when it just happens to fall on my lap. This is, listen, walk in wisdom. That means move your life, leverage your life, angle your life in such a way that, that it's geared in towards being in front of outsiders to lead them into Christ. Leverage your life like that. I think about a, a book... I believe it's called evangelism. It's the one that Mark Dever wrote on evangelism. And he was speaking out of some of his own personal examples. And he said in that that book that, that when he would go on his lunch breaks every day, he would begin to frequent the same restaurants over and over and over again. So he'd take about two or three months, just frequent the same restaurant on his lunch break. You know why he did it? Because he's angling his life, leveraging his life in such a way that if I do that, then I'll see those same waitresses and those same regulars there every time. And I'll begin to share the gospel with them, begin to try to lead them to Christ. That's what I mean. That's wise, right? Isn't that wisdom? This is what it means. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. If you do that, it affects everything in your life. If, you're, if your life is is... is Angled in that direction, it'll change. It'll affect everything in your life. It affects where you live, where you work, where you spend time, how you grocery shop, how you uh, spend your weekends or your weeknights, how you use your home, who you put yourself around frequently. It affects all of these things in your life because your life and wisdom, how wise is this to lean it in towards leading outsiders to to Christ? Number two, that phrase in verse five says. Making the best use of the time. Now, this is this is speaking more. It's more pointed. It's speaking more specifically about how how to live a wise life towards outsiders. And 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 here's here's the phrase. It says walking wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Making the best use—that's giving you some insight into a wise walk before outsiders. Making the best use of your time—it literally means—and it translates it this way in some of the older versions. It literally means redeem the time, buy it back, purchase the time. That's what he's saying here. Now, so here's the idea: every minute, every minute of your life, every minute of your life is sovereignly set in stone by God. Psalm 139, it says all the days of your life written in a book before there's one of them. You will not get one minute more or one minute less than God has has in His sovereignty designed for you. It's there. It's in place. And you watch those minutes go by. And every minute goes by is either wasted. That's a wasted minute. Or I'm going to buy that minute for the glory of God. It's a wasted moment, a wasted hour. Or I'm going to redeem it for His name's sake. That's the idea. That's the idea. Make the best use of your time. What a way to live life, right? Uh, Jonathan Edwards, many of you know Jonathan Edwards. He, he's a, a famous preacher and, and great awakening. And, and many people know about his famous resolutions that he wrote. I want to read to you his fifth resolution that he wrote. I believe he was 18 years old. Speaking with wisdom beyond his years, he says this Resolved. Never to lose one one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. There's a little poem that goes like this. Riches can be lost and restored. Possessions gone, possessions replaced. But when time is lost, you can't get more. Time past is forever erased. The idea is therefore spend more focus on your time than your riches. More on the moments than your possessions. Your time. Make the best use of your time. Don't lose a moment. Do you hear that in this verse of scripture? And that's I think there's a way we can be even more specific about what that phrase means though. Okay? So let me talk to you about that. More specific This phrase is making the best use of the time. Here's more. We can get a little more specific about what it means. And here's two important details that you need to understand to to get that. Okay. Two important details. One, it's specifically saying redeem the time towards outsiders. Okay. So this is, this is an evangelistic redeem the time. You understand that? It's an evangelistic make the most of your time. There's an urgency. You should think about there's lost. There's a lost person and there's an urgency in me to make the most of my time with that lost person. You get that idea? That's one thing you need to know. That's one detail. Second detail is this. The Greek word here translated time is "kairos," which carries the idea of, of not just your time in general upon the earth. Not just that, but this idea of of. A moments of time within time or, or opportunities. That's the idea. Opportunities here. Make the most of your opportunities. That's why the NAS says it like this. Making the most of the opportunities. It's this idea of God granting. You've heard it said like this before, right? Divine appointments. You ever heard that? God set up this divine appointment. He set it up this way. And I, I believe this word, okay, For the time or the opportunity. Make the most of the opportunity. I believe it connects back to verse 3 and 4. When Paul says, pray for me for an open door for the Word. That's the idea of God gives an open door. And when He gives the open door, make the most of it. Don't let it fly by. What are you going to do with it when God gives you the open door with the outsiders? Don't waste it. Make the most of it. That's the idea. So I think we should live lives where we pray. Just like Paul did, verse 3 and 4. We pray, God, give me open doors. That I might speak your word as I ought to speak. Give me open doors. And guess what God's going to do if you pray that? Open doors. Yes. You will not go here and say, he didn't do it. He's going to do that. He's going to open doors for you. And as he opens, doors, opens those doors, the question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to waste it? Are you going to waste it? Are you going to make the most... Make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every open door. I want you to see every opportunity with the lost world. You'll never get it back. You realize that you can you can get riches back, but you'll never get time back. You never get those opportunities back. Now, listen to me. Some of you are going to be you going to be encouraged. Some of you will be tempted. To hear what I just said, what I think God's Word is saying, and you're going to be tempted to be discouraged about that. Because what's going to be in your mind is, I had that open door, and I had that open door, and I had that open door. And even yesterday I had an open door, and I had an open door to that person there, and I wasted them. And you're going to be discouraged about that. And here's what I want to say to you. Stop it. You don't have to be discouraged about these. And Listen to me. Let's be a people that hears this from God. Everybody in the room can think of open doors that you've missed, that you've failed. Everybody. We can raise our hands all across the room and we know places where we failed in this. But listen, be encouraged to grow in it. What about today when we leave this place? What about outsiders that might even be inside this church meeting right now? What about outsiders you come into contact when you leave here today? What about tomorrow? What about next week? Let's ask God, grow us in this. That we stop missing opportunities. But we we move forward with evangelistic zeal. To make Christ known. Amen. Can we do that instead of being discouraged. Alright let's go to the third one. Your speech. Your speech before outsiders. Now. Wisely. Walking wisdom. Wisely rubbing shoulders with outsiders. Must involve. Your speech. That's the word in verse 6. Let your speech. Now this sentence is still connected. To this idea of personal evangelism. How do you know? Because at the very end it says that you might know how to answer each one. And each one is connected to the outsiders. He says that you need to walk in wisdom toward in verse 5. So the outsiders and each one. We're still talking about this evangelistic zeal in Christians. Okay. that's what we're talking about. So your speech must be involved. So why? Why must your speech be involved when you're rubbing shoulders with the outside world? And there's many, many reasons, many reasons, but let me give you the main reason. The main reason is this. The most important thing that you have to communicate to outsiders is, is it demands words. It's called the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's New Something has to be said. It's the message of Christ. Something has to be said. Do you understand that? That's why speech must be involved in this, in this wise walk towards outsiders. Because the gospel of Jesus is a spoken message that goes into the ear. People hear it. And they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they get saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 13. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But listen to this. But how will they call on him and whom they not heard? I not, I not believe, excuse me. How they believe in Him who they're not? There it is. Heard. You must hear it. How they hear? Unless somebody preaches. How they hear without a preacher? Romans ten seventeen says faith comes. How does it come? How does a soul get saved? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So the idea is a wise walk towards outsiders must involve your speech mainly because we come mainly with a gospel message. We need to live out Christ-like lives towards a lost world. There's no doubt about that. But that alone, in and of itself, you living out godliness does not ultimately help someone understand the gospel of Jesus. In fact, you might walk away and you look like a great person and Christ is ignored. And so you must, it must be speech, speech must be involved here. And I keep saying must, but let me say this too. It's privilege too, Right? Isn't it a privilege to get to speak of Christ? You get to speak of the one that created the cosmos. You get to speak of Christ Jesus who laid down his life for sinners that don't deserve it. You get to speak of the one who was crucified. The one who showed more love than any any person has ever shown in all the world. You get to speak of him. The one who died for us. Laid down his life. Wounded for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Took our place, our substitute, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, risen from the grave, a King forever. You get to talk about Him. Outside world needs it, and you get to be the messenger. I want you to see that. It's not just a must, but it's a privilege you get to do this. We all get to do this. Now, what kind of speech? In our verses here in verse 6, what kind of speech? And there's two categories are given about what kind of speech. One, and I'm putting these together. Is gracious, seasoned with salt. Gracious, comma, seasoned with salt. That's one category. Second category of what kind of speech should you have is a preparedness, a, a, a readiness, right? Because it says that you might know how you ought to answer, how you ought to respond. It's the same word over in Second Peter 3, or 1 Peter 3.15, I believe. It says, always be ready. Always be ready to give a defense for anyone to ask you the reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Always be ready to give an answer for anyone to ask you the reason for the hope that is in you. So, those two categories gracious season with salt, and number two, a preparedness, a readiness to know how you ought to answer. So, let's start with that first one gracious. Let your speech always be gracious season with salt. These go together and mean the same thing. One is a metaphor, so, season with salt is a metaphor that. Explains or goes into or gives us a description of a, a gracious speech here. I want you to understand gracious speech. Okay, this is, this is instructive for us. I want you to understand gracious speech as speech with grace, speech with grace, or, or speech that imparts grace. I want you to think about it like that. The, the NAS translates it like this Let your speech always be with grace. So speech is with grace. Speech that imparts grace. This means, here's what this means. Brothers and sisters of Christ or Paul to the Colossian church. Listen, be wise. Make the most out of all the time the opportunities you have with outsiders. And what I mean is don't waste your words. Let your words be words that impart grace when you're with outsiders. That's the idea. Let me give you a verse to help us see that. Ephesians chapter 4 is a very clear cross-reference. Ephesians 4.29. Listen, listen to Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talks as speech talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only... So it should come out of your mouth. Only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion. That it may give grace... To those who hear, grace is speech—speech speech that gives grace to those who hear. What do you mean, gives grace? Think about Hebrews four sixteen. Hebrews four sixteen says that we go where to the throne of grace, that we might attain grace to help in time of need. This idea of grace, of a divine help from God to those who don't deserve it, is divine help from God. And so, we have speech that gives grace. Then it's helpful. The idea is you you have only a certain amount of opportunities with outsiders. Make your words count. Speak in a way that it's helpful. That it helps their soul. Gracious speech is the idea. So as you're rubbing shoulders with outsiders, God's granting you open doors. Don't waste your words. Speak in ways that are helpful to the soul. Then you get that next phrase. It says... Seasoned with salt. It's a metaphor that further describes this grace imparting talk. Seasoned with salt. Now Matthew 5.13 can really help us understand that. Let me read Matthew 5.13 to us quickly. In Matthew 5.13 it says this. Listen to the reference to salt here. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, saltless loses its saltiness. It says, it's no longer good for anything. It's not helpful. It's not good for anything. Salt, the salt is there. It's good for something. That's the idea, it's good for something While it's there. So I want you to think about it like this. If the saltiness is lost. It's no longer good for anything. Is what it says here. So don't let your speech be like that. Don't let your speech be saltless. Or good for nothing. Let it be seasoned with salt. It's good for something. It's helpful. It's speech that imparts grace. Don't waste your words. Get that? Now this is a. I think it's a rebuke, obviously, not only, you know, obviously there's a rebuke for corrupt speech, right? Ungodly, wicked, corrupt speech. There, there's a rebuke for corrupt speech. But this is a rebuke. This goes further than that. This is even a correction to worthless speaking, meaningless speaking, idle speaking, and especially with that lost world that needs Christ. That's the idea this year. Now, why would this need to be said? Why would Paul feel the need to say this to the Colossian church? I think we all know. We may not know everything going on with the Colossian church, but we know our own hearts. We know sinful nature. And so we know that we have a tendency to do what among outsiders? Just waste our breath. Let our words be wasted. And not speak life. Not speak words that impart grace. He says it here. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Number two, and we'll say this one quickly: a preparedness. Okay, what does it mean? What what kind? Mean, excuse me. What kind of speech? A preparedness, a readiness in your speaking to outsiders, making your speech count with outsiders, with lost people. Well, is going to get you into many conversations, right? And in these conversations, you're going to need to be prepared to. What's the verse say? Know how you ought to answer. You have to be prepared to know how you ought to answer. I think there's a, a just a couple cross references here that can be helpful. Let me read this one to you in Proverbs 15. This is verse 28. Listen to this. About preparedness or readiness in your speech towards outsiders. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Some verses say studies how to answer. The heart of the righteous ponders studies, ponders, gets ready of how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The mouth of the wicked just lets it fly, whatever's there, but the heart of the righteous ponders, thinks, studies. How can I give an answer? How can I respond here? That's the idea, okay? One other verse I mentioned a moment ago is 1 Peter 3.15 where it says, Sanctify the Lord Jesus in your hearts and always be ready. Church of Jesus, always be ready. To give a defense for anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So this speech needs to be gracious, seasoned with salt, number one. Number two, there's a preparedness, a readiness there. And I love that because I don't think you have to be, I don't think you have to know uh, a ton of things, expert in a ton of things. But you need to be an expert in just a few things. You need to know know a few things really, really well. So I want to encourage you to be prepared. So number four, um. Number four, as far as the Christian life towards outsiders, is having an each-person mindset. So lastly here, an each-person mindset. Let me explain that. In verse 6 it says, look at verse 6 at the end there. That you may know how to answer each person. How to answer each person. That's dealing with people on the individual level. The language here in this verse is about a conversation individual to individual it's it's, it's the each person mindset i'm dealing with a person here it says it says that you might know how to respond i mean they said something to you and you're answering back to them and it's to each person that's about the multitudes here but in each person an individual mindset and in the way you think about your evangelism so I, so I, I don't want you to see your soul winning as mainly being accomplished through a, a mass communication, okay? I don't want you to see your soul winning as mainly being you popping some verse up on Facebook. I praise the Lord for that. Or put some communication on Twitter to go out to the multitudes. I want you to see a sincere speaking and conversation with individuals that you might be able to answer each one. I want you to see your personal evangelism in that light, okay? The evangelism Paul has in mind here is not just writing on blogs to reach the multitudes. It's not preaching mass evangelism crusades. It's dealing sincerely in conversation with individuals right here. Let's think about this. I think too often we're too worried about being famous, right? But God's not so concerned with us being famous and reaching the multitudes as being faithful and dealing with the individual soul. Being faithful to deal with the individual soul. Think about Christ. Everybody knows about Jesus preaching to the multitudes, right? You know about, and that's a praise to the living God for that. He's heralding at the sea of Galilee, heralding the gospel to the multitudes. But do you know about Christ? With the multitudes, he's right there whatever he wants to do with them, whatever he wants to say, and he moves away from them for a moment and he goes to that widow whose son has died and he speaks to her. Or that leper that nobody else would touch and he goes and he speaks to that leper. What about that? Or his disciples are confused. Why is he talking to that lady? Why is he conversing with that individual woman at the well who's a sinner? He's leading her to Christ. You understand? I want you to think about it from that angle. Not just the multitudes. Many people know about uh, Peter's famous sermons, right? But do you know about him looking intently? It says he looked intently at that beggar at the beautiful gate. And he looked at him. He spoke to that man. He conversed with that man. Led that man to Christ. So praise God for the massive things. But what about the individual level? Many people know about Charles Spurgeon. Charles, they consider him to be uh, uh, one of the greatest English-speaking soul winners of all time. Charles Spurgeon. Preaching to the masses at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. That's how you know it. But do you know Charles Spurgeon as the one that wrote the letter to Arthur Lazelle. You know about that? You can read in his biography. Uh, that I think Dalamore wrote. It's a great biography, by the way. And you read in that biography about him, one of his, his brothers in Christ that he loves. And he heard his brother praying for his son. And he picks up a pen with a broken heart. He begins to write a letter to Arthur Arthur Lazale, that man's son, an individual. And Arthur was led to Christ through that letter. So do you know that about him? The individual level. I want you to think from that angle. I want you to be challenged by this. Uh, it's not enough to post Christian things on the internet or to wear a Christian t shirt You have to open your mouth and get in conversations with individuals that are outsiders and aim to lead them to Christ. That's the idea of verse 5 and 6. I want you to be challenged by that. I also want you to be encouraged that God did not just fill up his church with a bunch of street preachers and influential writers. He didn't just fill up his church with that. But with individuals that would have individual conversations and lead people to Christ. Listen, in all the testimonies that I've heard, and I've heard a ton of testimonies. You must share your testimony with, with the, the leaders of this church to join the church. So I've heard so many testimonies. Do you know how many of those testimonies, they, they are rooted in, and I was talking to that person. Or excuse me, that person was talking to me. And they shared this with me. And they shared the gospel with me. And this happened. And they love me. And they shared the gospel with me. And it's this individual thing where people are being led to Christ. And I want you to be encouraged by that. God does that. Don't you believe God can use you in that? Praise the Lord. So what if what if this exhortation uh, really took root at the church of Colossus? So, so Paul's writing this letter. And the church of Colossus, man, they hear those words. And man, it takes root. What happens in Colossus? I don't know how big the church was, but people just started conversations with outsiders, started popping up everywhere. What, what about with Grace Community Church? That our church, what if it takes root? Got about 150 members in this church. remember members of the church, that takes root. And you imagine in the next couple of weeks, 150 conversations going down with outsiders about Christ Jesus while we pray. God saved their souls. And then it's just all repeat the next week and the next week and the next week. 150, 150, sit here in the gospel of Jesus Christ through these individual eye-to-eye conversations. Praise God. Lord, save souls through that. you want that? you long for that? And in closing, just in closing this down, let me just ask a question. Um, And let me just get us to think about a question very quickly. And it's this question: As you think about everything that I'm saying, okay, brothers and sisters in Christ, walk in wisdom towards those outside, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech be grace seasoned with salt. You may know how to answer each one. As you as you think about what the word is saying, what I'm saying here, what would hinder you in this? That's my question. What would hinder you in this? What are some things? They would hinder you from responding to these commands today. Let me just list a few quickly so that you can have them on your mind and fight them. And um, and by the way, we're all in the trenches together on this, right? Anybody here not need to fight to live a faithful life of evangelism? Nobody raised their hand, so I think everybody here is trying to fight for this. Okay, We're in the trenches together on this. But what are some hindrances that are there? Here's some hindrances. Number one, I just want to say in general sin... Sin is a hindrance. Let's just call it what it is. These commands we read today are not extracurricular. Okay? This is commands from Jesus. To not do them is disobedience. It's sin. So let's just call it that. Okay? And all of us have sinned in this area. We want to turn and grow and, and kill sin and walk with God in this. Number two, Satan. A hindrance in this area. Satan is a hindrance in this area. Listen to Revelation 12, 17. Let it fire you. Come against this opposition. Revelation twelve seventeen says the dragon. Who if you read Revelation 12. Is obviously the devil. Is obviously Satan. The dragon became furious. And went off to make war. Who is he making war on? To make war. On those who keep the commandments of God. And hold the testimony of Jesus. Don't let him. Don't let him. Number three, a hindrance, being unprepared, just not ready, just unprepared with the word of God, with the gospel of Jesus, with heart for this. And I just encourage you to fight it with diligence. Like I said earlier, fight unpreparedness with diligence. You you don't have to know many things, just a few things really well. And be diligent in that and fight against this unpreparedness to have an evangel, uh, evangelism witness in this world. Number four, fear. Fear of man. I'm afraid. I, got, I want to preach the gospel, but I'm scared. I'm scared of what they might think, say. I don't feel scared right now, but in the moment, I'm scared. There's fear there. Fighting with faith. Fight it with faith. Faith in the God that promises to help you. Don't you know that? When he commanded you to make disciples, what else did he say? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. When he said, I'll make you fish, he said, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He promised that. Stand on the promises of God. Don't be afraid, but be full of faith in God. Of course you're not. Of course you can't do it. Raise the dead? You can't raise the dead. Of course you can't do it. But Christ Jesus can. The glorious one who works in you can have faith in Him. Trust Him. And maybe I'll mention one more. Number five. Just apathy. Just apathy. Apathetic towards outsiders. A lack, a lack of concern towards outsiders. And, and here's what i say to that. Ask God to, to give you His heart for these things. Do you think if you say, God... Give me your heart. You're his child, okay? So if you're in Christ, you're his child. And you say, God, give me your heart toward the lost world, Lord. God, give me, transform me into your image and make me like you. That I feel what you feel toward the lost world. Do you think he's going to say, No? No. He's not going to say no. He's going to say yes. And he's going to answer your prayer. Ask him, do you feel apathetic toward a lost world? Continually ask God. Go to him like that persistent widow again and again and again. And say, God, give me a heart that burns like yours does. And he'll do it. Don't let apathy be a hindrance. So let me just, this promise I mentioned a minute ago. Let me just quote this promise to you. And this is a promise I want to pray to us. I pray, not to us, pray for us uh, as we close. Matthew 4, 19. Listen to the promise. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let me say it another way. Follow me and you will walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Making the most of every opportunity. You speak to be grace seasoned with salt. That you might know how to answer each one. Follow me and I'll do that. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters who are already, God, you have already served the souls of my brothers and sisters toward these things, God. I praise you, Lord, for that. That you've not left us, Lord, in this place of, of, of only apathy, God. We know we struggle with it at times and we hate it, God, and we want to be. We're asking you now, God, conform us into your image, God, that we might be soul winners like you're a soul winner. But God, I praise you that you in such a a major way have done that with this church already. That you made us long to make your gospel known, Lord. But God, grow us, please. Grow us, God. God, I pray that you would push away this sinful discouragement away from us, God. And let us be encouraged, God, that this is what you'll do if we ask you. And we're asking you now, God, make us fishers of men. We want to follow you, Jesus, with all our heart and soul. We don't want to follow anywhere else, God. We don't want to go anywhere else. Only you have the words of eternal life. Where else should we go, Lord? We've got nowhere. We don't want to go anywhere else, Lord. We want to follow you, God. We ask you, Lord Jesus, that as we follow you, God, day in and day out, that you you would make us fishers of men. Teach us, God, to walk in wisdom, God. Teach us to leverage our lives day in and day out, Monday through Sunday, God, teach us to leverage our lives, Lord, in such a way that we're out to win the lost. God, teach us to make the most of every opportunity, Lord. When opportunities, when when open doors, divine appointments arise in the next few hours, in the next few days, God, next few weeks, God, give us a heart to seize it, to buy it up, to redeem that time. Please, Lord, give us a heart for that. God, work on our speech, Lord. Give us speech that imparts grace. God, convict us when we waste our words. Teach us, God, that if we're going to open our mouth, that we give jewels. That we give precious treasure, Lord, every time we open it, open our mouths. And especially towards the lost world, Lord. God, I pray that souls will be saved. Let this be a time, Lord. A season in our lives, God, where you save many souls. God, let us be a part of it, Lord. You do it. You raise the dead, God. You give eternal life. You do all those things, Lord. Let us be a part of it, Lord. Let us be your instrument, your ambassadors, Lord. God, we love the thought of getting to work for you and alongside you, Lord. We love that thought. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.